You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. On the pod today, David Scheimer explains the history of Russian election interference and decades of relations with the country best known who brazenly helped Donald Trump in 2016. On this show, he told me all about his book, Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference as we discuss topics like election security, the social media's platforms, response to deceptive tactics, and, and also dirty tricks. And what do you know? That's relevant to what we're seeing right now during the 2020 election. Just today, we learned that U.S. intelligence wrote an entire report anticipating that Trump's lawyer Rudy Giuliani would weaponize Russian disinformation against America by brandishing fake emails, which has been playing out all week. So it's a perfect time to speak with David Scheimer. David's writing has appeared in prestigious Foreign Affairs Journal and the New York Times. I think you'll hear why Hillary Clinton gave his book a glowing review, and the Times made it an editor's choice book. Take a listen. I'm here with David Scheimer, the author of Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. He's an associate fellow at Yale and a global fellow at the Wilson Center, and this is one of the most important topics of our day right now during the 2020 election. David, thanks for taking the time to join me today. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing as, as well as can be hoped. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Right. That's a loaded question always uh, nowadays because of everything going on. But, uh, you know, this obviously is an urgent discussion. We'll, we'll dive right in. I, I'd like to start by asking, what's the central motivation that led you to personally write this book about the history of U.S.-Russia political relations? So I would say that I wrote this book because after Russia interfered in America's 2016 election, I was alarmed, frankly, at how so many analysts, so many commentators acted as though Russia's operation were unprecedented or entirely novel. Because to me, that's dangerous, because if you treat something as unprecedented, what you're suggesting is there's no history behind it and that there's no way to analyze it in some sort of broader context that allows you to really get at what's occurring and how to respond to it. And so I seek to restore history in this book to the subject of covert electoral interference um, and therefore to dispel that myth that what happened in 2016 was unprecedented. I show how the Soviet Union and the United States interfered in elections all over the world during the Cold War. I show how Russia is interfering in elections all over the world this century, right now. Um, and then I show how Russia interfered in America's 2016 election and get into both that operation and its aftermath. And only then do I believe in looking at that full story, that full history, is it possible to understand our own vulnerabilities as a nation, as a democracy, and then to formulate uh, a collective whole of government whole of nation response that's actually comprehensive and addresses the the, the exposure that that we're currently operating under and to me um, without that sort of full view it's very difficult to defend yourself if you're just operating in the here and now as if everything is is so novel and 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 so um, without any sort of of backstory because that's just not in, in alignment with the historical record this episode is brought to you by Shopify Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Right, and, and does, does that, is that because of the people acting like it was new and never happened before because of the internet and people just weren't used to the same medium that it was going through? I think that was part of it. Um, however, Russia's been interfering in elections all over the world um, with digital tools from from Ukraine and, and Montenegro to the United Kingdom um, and France. I, I interviewed the president of Montenegro for the book whom Russian intelligence tried to assassinate um, ahead of, of his election um, in 2016. I interviewed the former president of Colombia who told me that his social media platforms or networks are as well under siege by Russia's systemic campaign to sow division and to degrade discredit and delegitimize the democratic model, which is Putin's global global um, strategy of covert electoral interference. So I think part of it had to do with the internet, even though the KGB, as I detail, did interfere in many U.S. elections during the Cold War. But I also think part of it had to just do with this presumption inside our government that what Russia could do in other countries like Ukraine and Montenegro, it would not be willing or able to do to the United States because we were somehow more impenetrable or so powerful that Putin wouldn't try to pull that here, as one advisor put it to me, and that just didn't actually end up being true. And using your knowledge about the history of foreign election interference, which you wrote, could be used to harm either party. Uh, what do you see in Putin's current active measures as the top threat to our democracy today? So I would say that something that history does is it clarifies that there are only two ways to interfere covertly in an election. You can interfere in an election by manipulating people, which takes the form of spreading propaganda, um, such as stolen emails and disinformation across social media, or the second way is to manipulate actual ballots to either stuff ballot boxes, as Joseph Stalin, for example, and his collaborators did throughout Eastern Europe in the immediate post-World War II period, or by hacking into and manipulating election systems this century, which Russia um, had the ability to do in 2016, um, which we could talk more about as to how that captivated and in many ways froze our government at the time. But moving forward, I think that what we should be watching out for from Russia is efforts to interfere in our information environment by manipulating voters. And we've already seen many signs that Russia is doing that right now with regards to the 2020 election in order to sow division and advantage Donald Trump. And we also should watch out to see whether Russia escalates towards sabotaging um, our actual infrastructure or trying to um, as this election unfolds in order to sow even more chaos on top of the pre-existing doubt that already exists over whether this election will proceed fairly um, and legitimately amid the coronavirus and the inflammatory rhetoric that we've recently heard from the president. And you, you, you had written in the book about before the election, after the election, in particular, you wrote about Clinton and Yeltsin's relationship. Um, you know, one, do you believe that Putin looks at the first part and sees justification post-Soviet era for his recent action to help Trump? And two, if so, isn't it ironically true that if America did help Yeltsin win re-election, then that helped inadvertently lead to Putin's rise and present autocratic rule? So I don't think that there's 
an equivalency, to be clear, between American engagement with Russia's 1996 election and Russia, um, Russia's engagement with America's 2016 election. Because in 1996, what recently declassified transcripts show is that Boris Yeltsin was soliciting from Bill Clinton, asking Bill Clinton to interfere in the 1996 election. And very interestingly, Bill Clinton resisted those overtures um, consistently. He still did find ways to overtly um, bolster um, Boris Yeltsin. And as he said to me, I interviewed him for the book. He said, you know, it wasn't a secret. Everyone knew that I supported him. Um, But it's not as though America launched a covert operation um, to manipulate the Russian electorate um, or to fund the Yeltsin campaign secretly or to hack into to, or stuff the ballot boxes of of Russian um, precincts or, or, or voting stations. So, so I would say that in that regard, there isn't an equivalency. But in terms of Putin's worldview, I think that it's very true and very important to get at where he's coming from. And from Putin's perspective, America interferes in the affairs of countries all over the world. He has spoken about his resentment over, for example, American engagement in in um, Serbia in 2000, which led to the ousting of Slobodan Milosevic. He's spoken of America's invasion of Iraq and military action against Libya, which led to the fall of two dictators. He's decried or, 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 or assailed um, America's engagement over overtly um, in support of Russian protesters in his own country in 2011. So from Putin's perspective, America is involved very, very um, systemically in the affairs of other countries. And he has a uh, uh, in many ways, defensive mindset of therefore, in response, I'll interfere in the elections of countries all over the world. I think that's his worldview. I think it's a paranoid worldview, but I think it's one that's very important to understand because it's not as though he's just interfering in these elections for no reason. He has a, 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 a purpose here, which is to divide democracies from within and from one another, um, to increase Russia's relative power in the world and to tear down um, American democracy and the democracies of other countries into corrupted versions of themselves that are more likely to align with Russia and to bolster Russia's um, sway in the international system. So there, there's a there's a reason why Putin does what he does. And I think you're absolutely right. That's important to, to get our minds around. And you had mentioned the Cold War. Uh, can you summarize for our listeners some of the milestones they'll read about your book, major operations, etc.? Sure. So, I mean, I, I would say in very in, in brief, there are basically three phases of covert electoral interference in this history. The first is between 1919 and 1947. The Soviets were in the game. America wasn't. And first Lenin and then Stalin were interfering in elections all over the world, most notably between 45 and 47. Joseph Stalin um, and his forces aggressively interfered in elections across Eastern Europe with tools and tactics that in many ways foreshadowed what Putin has has since deployed around the world, including against our own country. The second phase was between 48 and 91. And the critical watershed moment there was in 1948, when Harry Truman had decided to respond to Soviet electoral interference with American electoral interference and authorized the CIA to engage in covert action formally for the first time with the express purpose of interfering in an election in Italy. So the starting point of CIA covert action was actually electoral interference. Between 48 and 91, the KGB and the CIA went toe-to-toe in elections more or less all over the world, um, mostly for America in support of centrist candidates, for the Soviets in support of leftist ones. The Cold War then ends, and there's a divergence in American and Russian foreign policy, where American electoral interference using the CIA becomes the exception rather than the rule. Um, Although America did interfere covertly, for example, in the Serbian election in 2000, as I reveal in the book, 
whereas Russia, rather than move away from this practice, has doubled down on it um, and has enhanced it using the Internet and has deployed it against elections all over the world. And I would say the most recent pivotal moment was our own election, because before 2016, this was a tool that was really in the shadows. Um, and that was viewed as a faraway issue. And 2016 brought it really to the forefront of discourse um, and to our own dialogue as a nation. Um, and that forced Americans to grapple with the exposure of our own democracy um, and what it actually takes to have a functioning democracy in the 21st century, when as a result of the internet, even the most well-established, powerful democracy in the world is completely vulnerable to this type of sustained campaign of political subversion. We said the scene. What do you, what is fueling all these ideological struggles between Russia and America? Yeah, I really tried to get at that. I interviewed um, more than 130 people for this book, including eight former CIA directors and a former KGB general. And what that KGB general really emphasized to me in the half day that I spent with him is that from the Soviet perspective and now Russia's perspective, elections are just an irresistible opportunity to manipulate the directions of democracies, their openness, um, their their built in degree of uncertainty over who's going to win makes it so that from the perspective of a country like the Soviet Union or Russia, what's the downside of deploying active measures of seeking to manipulate the direction of our of our politics? The Soviet Union interfered in our 1960 and 68 elections in order to destroy Richard Nixon, a Republican. They interfered in our 76 and 84 elections to try to go after Ronald Reagan, a Republican. It just so happens that now Russia is seeking to support a Republican. But what Russia's after in terms of what's motivating this is Russia's objectives, which are to choose our leaders for us, to sabotage our democratic system and to undermine democracy as a viable form of governance in the eyes of the world. And that should offend all Americans, regardless of their party loyalties. Do you think that there's anything that we are not seeing right now that you possibly know about of of how Russia is attacking us right now for the election? Are there new ways that they're implementing right now that we're not seeing yet? Um, is there anything that we should be bracing ourselves for? Um, you know, what's what's happening right now? Totally. So I would say right now what we know is that we've seen Facebook and Twitter conduct takedowns of covert Russian accounts. And a lesson of history is that what you see in real time is just the tip of the iceberg. So it's almost a historical certainty that there is much more to find in terms of Russian activity across social media right now that's seeking to manipulate voters by either dividing them or by getting them to um, favor one candidate over another, Trump over Biden. I would say the second thing to watch out for is Microsoft has announced that Russian military intelligence has been trying to steal the data or the emails of hundreds of US political figures. Um, and it remains to be seen to what degree they succeeded and whether Russia will again release whatever they stole or were able to steal um, through third parties in order to again advance their objectives. I would then say the third thing to watch out for, and this is completely new, is what Russia will do in the period between election day and when the results of the election are known and finalized. Because again, it's very important to understand that the Russian objective above all is to degrade and tear down American democracy. And a really effective way to do that is to take away our process of succession, to make the American people think that our, our elections aren't real, they're, they're, they're illegitimate, they're invalid, um, and they can't be trusted. So given all of the doubt that will 
inevitably exist in that unstable period that we're now only, um, you know, seven or so weeks away from. If I'm Russia, um, I'm considering either spreading disinformation about rigged polling places um, and inevitable and impending violence, as they did, by the way, in small amounts back in 2016 on Election Day. I'm also waiting to see whether Russia escalates to try to cause confusion by manipulating again our systems um, on Election Day or in its aftermath as they could have in 2016. I interviewed 26 former Obama advisors, and they said that Russia had the capability on election day four years ago to alter either the voter data or vote tallies of US citizens. And that's why the White House and DHS were secretly running crisis teams back then, bracing for a Russian cyber attack. And from where I'm sitting, I think that we've both tried to shore up our defenses for such a for such a form of attack, but that that threat persists. So in terms of what to watch out for, I'd say social media propaganda, hack and dumps of future documents and attempts to delegitimize our election outcome in between Election Day and whenever the results are finally tallied is what's on my mind right now. And this is probably not the best question in the world, but I noticed something the other day how um, there's a lot of paperwork coming out of the United States government that supports Russian conspiracy theories and disinformation campaigns. Did, did our government in 2020 become the sort of like WikiLeaks of, of 2020, I guess, instead of in 2016, they had this organization. Now they have the stamp of the United States government where they can put like, for example, the Hunter Biden report from Ron Johnson. Um, you know, what, what what's happening with our government and why, why are Republicans specifically, I guess, um, letting themselves, uh, why, are they, why are they using this disinformation for their advantage? So I can't get exactly what's going through Ron Johnson's head, but what I can say is that what you're seeing um, is just more of Russia's strategy be applied because the Russian tradition is to take pre-existing narratives, pre-existing vulnerabilities and blow them up, exploit them, pour gasoline on them. It's a lot less effective to just create something out of thin air than to build something up that already exists. So it's unsurprising, for example, that because the president is sowing doubt about the validity of mail-in ballots, you've now seen reports from our government that Russia is amplifying um, concerns about the validity of mail-in ballots. You've seen the president allege that his opponent has um, mental health issues or deficiencies. And once again, you've seen reports that Russia is amplifying that very same narrative that uh, of, of his opponent's um, mental capabilities. So in terms of what Russia does, Russia takes narratives that it likes and then just really tries to to spread them as far and wide as possible. And I think you're absolutely right that from Russia's perspective, the messaging that's coming out of the White House around certain key issues completely fits with what the kind of messaging that it would want to be spreading anyway. So it's very easy to just, you know, again, spread that rather than create new lines of messaging that would take much less um, naturally in our information ecosystem. So I would expect to keep seeing more of the same in that regard. I would always be thinking if you're Russia, how do you take stock of America's vulnerabilities? Because that is how these sort of operations work. And right now, our vulnerabilities in many ways are being um, either created or exacerbated by the people in power in our government. And today, Putin said that uh, Russia and the U.S. should not, so they should agree to not meddle in each other's elections. He wants a truce in cyberspace, I guess. Uh, but at the same time, he denied that he's doing anything to interfere in our elections. 
um, when obviously there's there's proof that is. So why is this is this a real offer of a truce, or is this just more propaganda that he's trying to create um, to to cover the fact that he's interfering in our election? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't take that offer at face value. I think what you're seeing is a is a pretty classic Putinist move, which is that America's engagement in Russia's affairs is overt, right? Whereas Russia's engagement with our elections is covert. So if America were to abide by that offer, that would be trackable. Like, are we stopping that overt engagement with NGOs or with Russia's politics, as has been the case over the last few decades? So whether we're living up to that agreement could, can be proven. And so therefore, if we were to ever do that, then we we would actually uh, that would stop. Whereas from Russia's perspective, Russia's covert operations are designed to be deniable. So Russia could continue to do exactly what it's doing um, and then just continue to deny that it's doing it as Russia has denied, as you said, that it's interfered in the 2016 or 2020 elections. So I think that that offer is is not to me, made it all in good faith. Um, I think it's just designed to advance Russia's interests. But I, knowing and studying Russia, would see, have no reason to believe that if America were like, okay, we're game, Russia would then cease its covert operations to interfere in elections in America or elsewhere. This isn't a new story. The Soviet Union and now Russia have been interfering covertly in elections with brief interruptions for a century. It's part of their foreign policy. It will persist. And 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 an offer made a few weeks before an election that says otherwise, um, but that doesn't actually have any sort of enforcement or oversight mechanisms shouldn't be taken seriously. And uh, how can we, I guess this is a question that probably everybody would ask, but how can we make peace with Russia? So I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly how to make peace with Russia. I, 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 I think that there will always be tensions um, and competition um, between um, powerful states. But in terms of how we could defend ourselves while also collaborating when possible with Russia, I think that the next administration, whether in 21 or 25, needs to adopt a both domestic and foreign policy approach to this threat of covert electoral interference. You need to renew America at home by securing our infrastructure, by managing these hack and leak operations and social media operations in a much more comprehensive way through private public cooperation, um, through, through transparency, through regulation, and otherwise, you need to invest in things like local media and education that allow our citizenry to be much more informed and aware of these types of operations designed to manipulate them. And at the same time, you need to renew our leadership abroad. You need to collaborate with the democracies of the world to detect and deter Russia's interference operations while still collaborating with Russia on key issues when possible, such as, for example, nuclear arms. So I think that there's a lot more we can be doing as a country to make ourselves more fortified against these sorts of operations, both at home and also, again, while abroad, working with other countries to, to uncover what Russia is doing and to punish Russia um, when necessary, while still um, coming to the table with Russia when it's when it's in our interest to do so. So in terms of making peace with Russia, I don't think that that is the frame I think about it. I think of it about it as the frame of how do we protect our democratic processes? How do we collaborate with Russia um, when possible? Um, and how do we help other democracies defend themselves as well? And I think that to me is is the starting point to getting where we should be and having a much more manageable um, and calm relationship rather than this sort of anarchic um, mode that we've been operating in over the past several years. Is there anything else in the book that we haven't discussed that you'd like to share with our audience? Um, 
I think what I'd like to emphasize to your audience is just not to fall for the temptation when something happens, like if emails are released or if a new tactic is introduced. I think that the daily media has a tendency to ring the alarm bells and induce almost or, or provide a sense of panic um, and as if this is completely out of the blue. And I would just say that whether it's through my book, um, as I would advocate or otherwise, to really try to learn up on what Russia is doing around the world, what Russia's done to us, what we've done to other countries, to place what's happening right now in its proper history so that you're able to know what to expect, what's actually unprecedented and what's not, and how to respond as as an engaged citizen of our democracy, because the best defense against these types of operations and the best defense against assaults against our democracy in general are an informed, engaged electorate. And so I think escaping sort of the hysteria of our current moment and really trying to 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 enhance um, the historical understanding of of how we got here and what we can do about it is why I wrote this book and why I think that um, it's so important to study these types of things. I'd like to thank David Scheimer for joining me on the show. I'd like to thank our producer, Grant Stern. You can follow him at Grant Stern. You can go to our website at DeworkingReport.com to listen to more episodes. Thanks again for listening. Keep resisting. We are almost there. Let's finish strong. Vote. 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 Onward!